Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Hey guys, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jen. And And you're you're listening to Fathomless. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our last episode on Russell Bean. Yes. What a doozy. Oh my god, that was insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but anyway, before we start today's episode, we just want to give a little disclaimer. Both Amanda and I are getting over some sort of flu or cold. Yeah, we are. We were both wicked sick last week. Um, so if we sound like, you know, Squidward tentacles who just smoked a carton of cigarettes... I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, But we just did not want to skip a week, especially where it's, you know, we're so new. We really didn't want to make you guys miss anything. Yeah, we're here for you guys. Exactly. Um, Yeah, we're we're on the last leg of it, so I don't think we're contagious anymore. But we definitely had, like, the same thing. No, we definitely did. All of our symptoms were exactly the same. Yeah, and I'm glad we got it around the same time so we could still record. Yeah, sit and record. Yeah, um, we do live two states away, so we do kind of pre-record multiple episodes at a time. So yeah, the next few episodes might sound a little we, nasally. We'll probably sound like this, but you know, please bear with us. Everything will be back to normal in a couple weeks. Yeah, we got some good episodes yes. to record today. Exactly. So. Yeah. yeah, we got we got some good ones. So, um, I haven't seen Amanda in a couple weeks. How you doing? I'm doing fabulous. How yeah. was your weekend? My week was great. Um, I went to Adam Sandler last night. Yeah. Love that. Because he is daddy. Oh, my God. (laughs) No, I love him. I was, like, raised on Adam Sandler movies. Same. Same. He's fucking hilarious. Me and my husband went. We had a great fucking time. I love that. Um, Yeah, he's awesome. Rob Schneider was there. He's fucking great. Oh, my God. It was a blast. Yeah, it was so much fun. Um, If you guys ever get the chance to go see him live, go fucking do it. It's the second time I saw him. He was fucking awesome. Um, but other than that, I've just been getting, like, settled into the house still, painting, working. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Do anything um, fun lately? Besides being sick all last week, um, the week prior, I went to a haunted house. Which oh, my I God. Where? Uh, Fear Town in Seekonk, Mass. Um, it was so much fun. Oh Literally God. so much fun. I haven't been to a haunted house since I was, like, a kid. See my baby. I, so, I, haunted houses are my thing. It was great. There was, like, three different houses that you could go into. One was, like, an 80s, like, slasher kind of vibe. Okay. Another one was Puppet Master. Oh, my so God. Was, like, nope. I'm out. Everyone dressed up as dolls <laughs> nope, and stuff. Nope. All about that. I'm nope. all about everything. Spooky, horror movies. Yeah, Amanda's all the that. more, like, gory, bloody... Yeah type i'm yes. definitely like the halloween town hocus pocus yeah shout out to horror soup best horror movie podcast out there besides night shift video my boys love them yeah i can't do blood and gore it just my anxiety goes to the room <laughs> yeah no i'm a child I so i watch the kid movies it. yeah amanda's very knowledgeable in the horror movie department oh god yeah not me um but anyway, let's get into it. So Amanda is going to be bringing us this crazy case today. Um, it is going to be a two-parter. Yeah, two-parter. there's a lot that happens in this case. I don't know much about it. Um, Amanda sent me her notes. <laughs> there's so many notes. There are. Um, I didn't want to read notes. them all because, like, again, like, I want to hear it for the first time, too, like you guys are. Yeah. She is along for the ride with you guys. Yeah. It is 
quite a fucking ride. Yeah, so um, Amanda's going to be telling us about the unsolved case of the New Bedford Highway Killer. Um, this happened in when? The 80s? Yep, so okay. it was between 1988 and 1989. Okay. So, so and still unsolved. Oh, my yeah, God. still unsolved to this day. All right. Um, so part one um, is going to cover the timeline when the bodies were discovered. And part two will go into some suspects and maybe a trial or two. And then there's a little theory that is going to bring us overseas to Portugal. Yes. Holy shit. Yes. Okay. So it's a, this is a doozy. Um, I do want to preface this episode by saying this is going to be a really upsetting case that we're going to cover today. Um, We're going to talk about a lot of triggering topics. We are going to talk about substance abuse. We are going to talk about sex work. We are going to talk about sexual assault, um, j- pretty much anything that you could list that's terrible, just add it onto the list. Yeah, so. and if that's not your thing, then maybe this yes. episode isn't for you, but, yeah. you know, a lot of our episodes, we are going to get into some crazy details, so. Yeah. So, another thing I want to say, between the 11 women that we are going to talk about today, there are 15 children who lost their mothers, countless grandchildren who never got to meet their grandmother, and... Just keep that in mind before we're making any comments about any of the women and what they may have been doing with their lives at the time that they disappeared. Um, Regardless of what these women were doing, what substances they were struggling with, that does not make them less of a person or undeserving of justice. And Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes people look at people's lifestyle and they kind of get lost in the fact that this is a human being. Yeah. This is somebody's mother. This is somebody's daughter, you know, somebody's friend, somebody's sister. So they did not ask to be murdered. We're just going to say that. They did not ask for this. So if anyone has anything negative to say about sex workers or people struggling with substance abuse, you know, just keep your comments to yourself. That is not what we're here to do today. Yeah. Not the place for this. You know, you hear people being like, oh, well, they were a prostitute and they were on drugs. It does not mean that they were less of a person or undeserving of being found or, you know, whatever you want to say. Yeah. doesn't mean anything. They are still a human being. So I'm going to link all of the resources in the notes below and everything. But I did want to mention that pretty much all of my information came from this amazing book that I think that you should all go out and get, which was Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Killer by Maureen Boyle, who was actually a journalist for the Standard Times, which I believe is now known as the South Coast Times. Yeah, um, I've heard of that. So newspaper, right? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, so she was a journalist at the time of this happening, covering some of these disappearances and the bodies being found and everything. And she wrote a book on it? And she wrote an entire book. She did interviews with all of the retired investigators. Oh, so it's like first-hand accounts. Very, very much first-hand accounts. Family members were involved in the writing of it. It was so... So it's pretty accurate information. Yes. Okay, good. Amazing book. I will link like the website to it below so that if anyone wants to buy it or if there is like an audio version copy i do can i borrow it yes you can (laughs) um but yeah so i did just want to mention that like i said i'll have it in the notes as well um so now with all of that out of the way i'm gonna start by taking you to a little coastal city in southeastern massachusetts called new bedford new bedford new bedford new bedford It is the spring of 1988. Ronald Reagan is president. The Cold War is almost at its end. We got Whitney Houston and Billy Ocean on the radio, you know, topping the charts. And in New Bedford, 
28-year-old Robin Rhodes has been missing since April. So Robin is not the first person who went missing, and she was actually not found until March of the following year when a cadaver dog was searching Route 140 southbound mm -hmm. and would find her skeletal remains off of the highway. So Robin Rhodes, like I said, she was not the first one to disappear, and she was not even the first body found along the highway. She was body number seven. Yes. So now we're going to fast forward a couple months and go into the timeline of when the bodies were actually found. So I do want to preface this by saying that this can get really confusing because um, a lot of the bodies were not found for months. Some of the women went missing and were gone for literally like six, seven months before they were found. Um, others were only gone for a few days. And pretty much all of the women were not identified until, like, December of 1988. Okay. Were um, they all, like, reported missing? Not all of them were reported missing immediately. Because, unfortunately, a lot of these women were sex workers. They did have substance abuse issues. So it wasn't uncommon yeah. for them to disappear from their family for a few months at a time mm -hmm. and lose contact with family members. Okay. Um, that wasn't the case for all of them, though. A lot of the women were still very, very close with their families. So some of them were reported missing fairly quickly. But like I said, some of them, they, their parents kind of knew that they were out in New Bedford. They were hanging out around Weld Square, which is an area we're going to talk about a little bit. And so, yeah, unfortunately, not all of them were reported missing immediately. Like, for example, Robin, she was not reported until July of 1988. And when did she go missing? April. So she was last seen in April. Her mother did not report her missing until July. So it does get a little uh, a little hectic, a little chaotic with the timeline. Um, and like I said, most of these bodies were not identified right away. Um, they were all considered Jane Doe's for several months. Um, we're also going to talk about how uh, the decomposition of them caused them to not be identified for a while. So I am going to start with when the very first body was discovered on the highway, and then we're just going to kind of follow the timeline from there. I feel like that is the easiest way for everyone to follow along. Again, I, I really apologize if it gets confusing. I'm no, you've been best. working on this case for a while. Yes. So, you know, I... This has consumed my life for like a month. <laughs> um, anyway, let's get into it. So it is July 3rd in 1988, and as most New Englanders know... Pretty much everyone in Massachusetts is on the Cape celebrating for 4th of July. Mm -hmm. So there was very little traffic heading northbound on 140, which was about 60 miles away from Cape Cod. However, that afternoon, there was one woman who had stopped her car along that very highway, just over the Lakeville town line, for what she thought was just going to be a quick pit stop to relieve herself, which quickly turned into a complete fucking nightmare. About 30 feet from the road, hidden among the brush, was the body of a woman. She was partially clad with a bra wrapped around her neck. Upon the discovery, Lakeville Police and Massachusetts State Police were called to the scene. Detectives weren't aware at the time, but they were looking at the body of Deborah Medeiros, a 30-year-old woman from Fall River. It wouldn't be until months later in December that she would be identified. And unfortunately, the extreme summer heat um, it was oh, actually... God. One of the hottest on records uh, was high 90s for most of it. And it's also July. So yeah, lots of heat, lots of humidity. And the exposure to the elements had really accelerated her decomposition. 
So her remains were basically skeletal. Gotcha. Uh, a few days later, after the discovery of the body, a uh, Boston medical examiner would say that the Jane Doe had been probably dumped sometime in the early winter of 1987. Oh, so she was there for Prior a while. to the cold weather. No, actually. Deborah had not gone missing until May okay. of that year. Okay. But because of the heat, her body just decomposed so So it looked like quickly, she was there longer. It looked like she was there much longer than she had been. And this is actually a very common theme in this case, where all of these bodies were far more decomposed, which threw investigators' timeline off. And we'll kind of explain that a little bit later, because there comes to a point where these bodies are found, and the detectives in Bedford who are looking for these missing women are like, oh, wait, those bodies can't be these women. They've only been missing for a couple months. Those bodies have been there since 1987, which is a case. Did they so, not account for the heat? So, unfortunately, there, the, I mean, it was the 80s. Forensic science was still very much in its, its early stages. Uh, another thing is, you know, the only kind of DNA evidence we had at this time was really blood typing uh, and APHIS, the uh, fingerprint system, we'll talk about that later, had just been introduced into the state of Massachusetts two years prior. Mm -hmm. So everything was still pretty much done on paper and in filing cabinets. It was, it was a very different time. Very different time. Now, to the detectives that came to the scene, it looked like a typical body dump. Uh, she was on her back with her head kind of deeper into the woods and her feet facing the road as if she had been dragged down the embankment out of a vehicle. To them, it was obvious she had been killed elsewhere, meaning that there was little to no evidence at that scene that the body was found. Along with it being out in nature and being the middle of summer, exposure to elements, animals, all of that, they really couldn't gather anything from the scene. So they just had a Jane Doe on their hands with no information to really go on. And... Like I said, little did they know, Deborah had only been reported missing two months prior. And there was actually four other women missing in New Bedford at this time, too. Rochelle Clifford, um, I want to say this is Dio Pereira. I'm going to try so hard to pronounce these names properly. It's a lot of Portuguese names, so I'm so sorry if I fucked them up. Oh, we're going to botch everything but. on this podcast. <laughs> Unintentionally. We're going to do our best, but we have Rochelle Clifford Dio Pereira. We have Deborah Lynn McConnell. Christina Montero, and Marilyn Cardoza-Roberts. All are currently missing when this first body is found. Just five days after the Jane Doe was found on 140 northbound, a man named Frankie Pina entered the police station of New Bedford. Frankie was well known as a frequent flyer in the area. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, known to get in trouble with drugs and Little robberies, small things like that. So for a man like Frankie Pina to walk into the police station willingly and ask to speak with a detective at the front desk, made yeah, pretty like much what? every <laughs> officer in there turn around and be like, excuse me? <laughs> so Frankie was not there for himself. He wasn't turning himself in. He was there frantically trying to get help because he had not seen his girlfriend, Nancy Lee Pavia, in two days. So she was actually last seen walking away from Whisper's Pub in the early hours of July 7th after getting into an argument with Frankie outside of the pub. So remind you, July 3rd is when we found the first body on 140. Yep. July 7th, we have Nancy go missing. Two days later, Frankie's walking into 
the police station to report her missing and ask for help. Okay. So he was insisting that something was wrong and she just wouldn't disappear. Like she would say something. She had two daughters that she lived with. One was a teenager, one was a little bit younger, but she would not just leave her children alone. Now, let me guess, because it was this guy that, you know, the police knew. Did they not believe him at first? So thankfully, there was one detective who happened to be walking by and knew Frankie Pina. This is our dude, John Dextrotter. And he noticed that he was like, what the hell is Frankie Pina doing in my station? Yeah. So he actually took down the missing persons report and okay. told him that he would look into it. And that is very important. Uh, John is the main reason that this case even got investigated. Um, he actually really pushes for the DA to start a task force and everything. Okay. Uh, but we'll, we'll get into that further down the timeline. So, like I said, they put in a missing persons report. Um, I do want to mention that Nancy's sister had also tried reporting her missing, but did not get the same treatment. She actually called 911 to report her missing after her two nieces had said that they had not seen her mother in a few days and they had been left home alone. And the 911 dispatcher said, listen, you have to understand, junkies disappear all the time. We can't go looking for every single one of them. What the fuck? Yes. There are people too. Exactly. So, July 16th, about a week later, we have Mary Rose Santos dropped off at a bus station by her husband. Five hours later, she's seen dancing at the old quarter deck lounge. She was never seen again. She'll be reported missing in the following days. Two weeks after that, on July 30th, we have a call come into the Dartmouth Police Station. Two bikers on westbound side of Interstate 195 had discovered the remains of what appeared to be a woman. The authorities at the scene saw another body dump. Pretty simple. It was mostly skeletal remains. Uh, Her facial features were completely unrecognizable. And unfortunately, they had another Jane Doe on their hands with little to no information. Now, nobody knew this because, again, this body was basically completely skeletal, so they assumed it had been dumped in the winter prior. This was Nancy. So she had only been reported missing about three weeks before. Now, in the 80s, in the state of Massachusetts, there were only actually three cities who had task force large enough to dedicate, like, detectives to homicide cases, and that was Boston, Springfield, and Worcester. So not anywhere near New Bedford. Nope. All other towns received uh, any kind of help in homicide cases from the state police. So State Trooper William Delaney was the officer on call for Bristol County. When he arrived on the scene at July 30th, he kind of noticed that there was a lot of similarities to the scene that he had been on, you know, earlier that month. The other Jane Doe? Yes. So thankfully he had been to both. So both women were found in the exact same position. Their heads were into the woods. Their feet were closer to the road, only about 20 to 30 feet away from the breakdown lane of the highway. They both appeared to be similar in height, about five foot. They both had dark hair. So... Obviously, that's going to raise some red flags. You found two bodies roughly 25 miles from each other, both dumped on remote areas of highways. Obviously, it's going to make any detective's ears kind of perk up and be like, well, then. Uh, But unfortunately, they didn't have anything to identify these women. And there wasn't much of a scene to investigate because obviously with dumping grounds, there's really nothing. There's no blood evidence. There's nothing around there to show that they died in that area. Now, 
three more women actually vanished from New Bedford that summer. We have Marilyn Roberts, who was last seen that June. And then there is Deborah Greenlaw DeMello, a mother of three who was last seen in downtown New Bedford in early July. So now we're up to nine women missing, which is, that's a lot. Yeah. Did they find every single body? No, there are actually uh, two bodies that have never been found, uh, though they are presumed to have uh, suffered the same fate as the rest of the women. Um, so they could very well still be they could on very the side well of 140. Still be. And I mean, honestly, I feel like not all of them were found. I feel like there could be more victims. That were never even reported missing. That were never missing. even reported missing, exactly. Now we're going to go into August. August 11th, 24-year-old Sandra Bethello told her boyfriend she was running to a friend's house to get some bread. Which they indicated that that probably meant not like bread, bread. To eat. Not like oh, that's what I was thinking. It probably like meant money, that or drugs, something like okay. that. Uh, it was code. Yeah, they never really. It didn't say anything definitive, but just hey, said maybe she, was, she gonna, was getting a loaf of bread. Could be. It could be. But she told her boyfriend she was going to return in a couple minutes. She was just running up to a friend's house down the street. Unfortunately, she never returned home, and Sandra was reported missing. Then, less than a month later, on September fourth. Fourth, we have Dawn Mendez, left her Bluefield Street apartment in the south end of New Bedford. She was wearing her Sunday best, white dress, white gloves. She was actually on her way to a family party for a christening. And even though Dawn was only 25 years old, she'd definitely grown up too fast. She had a young son who her mother was taking care of. She had had a lot of problems with substance abuse. She had some prostitution charges. And, you know, everyone's got their own demons that she struggles with but despite that she was still very much a part of her family and was still very close with her mother and her young son so her going to this family christening she would not have missed this for anything yeah unfortunately she did not show up to her family gathering she was never seen again and her mother actually reported her missing that evening because they knew that something was seriously wrong and that brings a total to 11 God. missing women so we're only like 20 minutes in. Nope. Yeah. It, is, it happened very, very quickly when they all started becoming, when they all the women went missing. Up, one after another. And then the bodies were found a little bit after that. So when September came, remember our good friend, John Dextrotter, yep. our detective the from good New Bedford? Yes. Yeah, so he had spent enough time talking to all of the women in downtown New Bedford and in Weld Square, which Weld Square was known as like a gathering point in the city for sex workers and people with substance abuse. You know, it was a, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, you could say like they're a red light district or something. But essentially that is where if you were looking for information on any of these people, you would want to go there and hang out with them. And that is when John started noticing that several of the sex workers were talking about how women were just disappearing left and right. There was a ton of missing women reports. He had heard of the two Jane Does that were found just outside of the city limits. However, he had heard from the state troopers working on the cases that those bodies had been dumped the winter prior. So he actually didn't think that it could be any of the missing women because they had all been reported missing in the spring of that year, not winter of the prior year. So as you can see, that's when some things get a little misled, unfortunately. Yeah. But... From what he had noticed from everyone talking in the city, it was 
it was bad. There was something seriously going on, and he knew that something needed to happen. So John knew that the city of New Bedford really did not have the manpower to handle a case like this on their own. So what he did was he compiled all of the evidence, all of the missing persons reports that he had. He worked with some of the state troopers, and he put in a request to speak to the district attorney's office of Bristol County and basically was kind of hoping that they would kind of make a special task force and start doing some investigating. Do they have one now? Um, so New Bedford, I believe now with the larger population, they do have their own like homicide, like, I, like I mean, it's a, or it's whatever, a big, but in the eighties, it was significantly smaller. It was like a, a small fishing city. Gotcha. Okay. So, like I said, yeah, there was only three cities that really had enough enough manpower and enough money to actually have, like, big enough police forces. Everything else the state police helped with. Or, you know, the county and stuff like that. And um, I do want to mention kind of, like, what was going on in the city at the time. Because it was, it was kind of weird. Uh, New Bedford really had a bad reputation. And city officials were scrambling to rectify it in the 80s they were known as you know a not so great fishing city they were known to have a lot of drug issues they were known to have a lot of drug busts uh and there was actually a really bad uh public gang rape a few years prior to this that happened in a bar it what was, oh yes. my god it was, uh 1983 and um it was really really bad a woman was violently attacked um, by multiple men. It made national headlines. Uh, the men, thankfully, some of them were uh, put in jail. They did, you know, see a trial and everything. And um, but yeah, it really, it really affected the community. And it really kind of put a stain in like the media's eyes on the city of New Bedford. I honestly feel like even today, it doesn't have the best reputation. No, it doesn't. I um, mean, the downtown area is beautiful, like the cobblestone roads and stuff, but oh, yeah. you hear like right. living in New Bedford, Fall River, it's not always yeah. the best place. Yeah, there's some characters in the city. Yeah, I mean, there's characters everywhere, but in some yeah, towns there, more than other. There was a pretty high crime rate for, you know, it being a smaller city. And in October of 1988, there was actually a dramatic reenactment of this assault being made into a movie uh, that was called The Accused, starring Jodie Foster. Did you watch this? I did watch this, actually. I had seen it before. I didn't realize it was about uh, a, an incident in New Bedford, Massachusetts. But so, I mean, we're in September of 1988. This movie is set to come out in October of 1988. So... It was, it was kind of back in the news, and people were kind of had their eyes turned towards the city of New Bedford again. So John knew that going to the DA's office and saying, hey, I think we have a serial killer in the city of New Bedford, was not what city officials wanted to hear at this moment. In fact, it was basically the complete fucking opposite. They were trying to get as far away from violence and, you know, being a mini sin city, basically. But if it's happening it's it's happening it's a reality yes. and you gotta face it but just wanted to bring that <sighs> up because as we know unfortunately sometimes people focus a little bit more on things like that than what truly matters so on october 3rd 
just a couple weeks before his meeting with the DA, John had actually reached out to the Standard Times to try and get like a little bit of a push from the community because nobody really knew what was going on. So the Standard Times released an article that was titled Fear Builds for Missing Women. The article highlighted the missing women from the city and detective, detectives' concern that they were in danger or possibly worse deceased. Which obviously kind of made the DAs kind of pay more attention to them. And uh, he did actually get his request approved. So he is going to be going in to speak to them. So there were... Uh, it was pretty hard to get like a task force made together in the 80s, but they did their best. Um, by early November, the district attorney was contacting Connecticut State Police to request the best cadaver dog in the East Coast at the time. And they actually had two main investigators that were put on to be in charge of the task force, Mary Ann Dill and Jose Gonzalez. Gonzalez? I'm so sorry if I fucked that up. I'm just going to butcher every name. I'm so you. sorry. Um, but... They were um, appointed by the Bristol County DA to uh, basically do the damn thing and uh, get this solved. Now, meanwhile, November 8th, a highway crew is cleaning up on Interstate I-95. And they're on the eastbound side of the Reed Road exit ramp, which I drive by that like every day. <laughs> literally every day. My boyfriend lives in New Bedford. But the workers made a pretty grisly discovery. About 25 feet from the road, scattered in the trees, was a bunch of women's clothing. Jackets, socks, shirts, pretty much everything. And right below all of the clothing in the trees was what appeared to be the decomposing remains of another woman. Again, this Jane Doe wouldn't be identified until a month later in December, but this was Deborah Greenlaw DeMello, who had actually walked away from a Rhode Island prison work release program in June of 1988. And she was last seen on the streets of New Bedford in July. And I also want to notate one thing that I found very interesting. There was not just Deborah's belongings found in the trees around her. Nancy Pavia's belongings were also found where Deborah's body was found. And Nancy hadn't been identified. At she point had yet. not been identified at that point either. So, so this, killer is clearly sloppy yes but yet somehow did not get caught well i don't know i have i i think they found the guy and that he got away with it is that a theory you'll bring up yes okay. he's one of the suspects oh. and when you okay. when you hear the connections you're gonna be like he did it how <laughs> fucking how did this man not get charged kind of like robert chambers and the russell bean murder yes all signs point to you Yep, but unfortunately, it's. Um, I did want to. We're going to discuss this in the second part, but we're going to discuss the difference between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence and Every why you need both in order to get a conviction. I feel like everything before forensics was circumstantial. So that's what I thought too, until I actually kind of dig some. Dids, blah, 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 did some deep diving into it. I went on to like the US court websites and, you know like a little law school moment like my l woods moment and did some reading about it yeah and it made a little more sense obviously it's frustrating but it's you know it is what it is but back to our timeline so obviously this was another body found on the highway this is the third jane doe so investigators decided it was their best to start their search with i-95 and this is when we meet 
Connecticut State Trooper Andy Redman and his German Shepherd, Josie. Josie! Yes, so and cute. I have a picture of Josie that I'm going to put up. Yay! She is so cute. I have a soft spot for German Shepherds because that was like my childhood dog. So I just love them. I love them. But uh, Josie was actually the only dog on the East Coast who was specially trained to search for cadavers. So I didn't know this, but back in the 80s, there really wasn't many police dogs. And they were usually cross-trained to do multiple things. And when you cross-train a dog to do multiple working things, they uh, they can kind of get a little distracted sometimes. So to have a cadaver dog that was only trained in that and not trained to work in multiple fields, she really was the best of the best. Pretty much anywhere on the East Coast, if they needed to search for a body, Josie was brought in. Fuck yeah, Josie. So she really, she's the true hero of this whole story. She really is. Honestly, and fucking hats off to John Dextrotter for talking to women, talking to the sex workers, compiling the evidence and going to the DA and saying, hey, we need to do something about this. Because not many other people would have done that. And I know that a lot of times the mindset in law enforcement is that, you know, sex workers, people like that, they're they're not worth looking for because they're, you know, I hate when they say that, but they're dead already or something fucking terrible like that, which is just, no, no. Like we said before, human beings. But anyway, so Josie is on the job now. She's going to start searching for bodies. And it was November 29th and the second day of Andy and Josie's search on Interstate 195 when she discovered the fourth body. And it was on the westbound side of the highway off of, again, the Reed Road exit ramp. There were skeletal remains of a woman who had sunk into a muddy drainage ditch. Now, somehow, miraculously, one of her hands was placed in such a way that she actually had it protected from the elements. And one hand did not decompose as fast as the others, so they had a fingerprint that they could get. Finally, Which something. Literally, like, the fact that her, like, just from some magical event that her hand was, like, it was basically, they said it was under some brush so that it was protected from, like, the sunlight and wind and rain and stuff. So it became the first time that they could actually, you know, do get, something. Get a print. Get a print. And um, this, unfortunately, was Don Mendez, who had been last seen leaving her home in September to go to the family christening. And... She was actually identified just a little bit after she was found because they had a, a freaking fingerprint and unfortunately she was in the system. So because she had had previous charges for drugs and sex work, um, they were able to find it pretty quickly. Um, and it was amazing that they did because like I said, APHIS had just been introduced, which I don't know if anyone knows this, APHIS is the Automated Fingerprint Identification System. And it had just been introduced into Massachusetts in 1986 but only a few departments had been uploading fingerprints into the system. Prior to that, everything was on, you know, like little index cards with an ink print just in a filing cabinet. So, it, so she had to have been arrested in the past two years. That, or New Bedford actually had enough manpower that they had upload. somebody uploading the, the fingerprints okay. into the system. But yeah, it was, that was a big breakthrough in the case. It was the first time that we actually got somebody identified. Now, after Dawn was discovered, obviously, the searching efforts were stronger than ever. They had an entire team of state troopers and detectives, local law enforcement, all banding together to start searching the highways. 
And two days after Dawn's remains were found on 195, Josie made a discovery while searching 140 northbound in the Freetown area, just two miles away from where the first body was discovered in July. And this was also, again, a woman partially dressed with a bra wrapped around her neck. And these were the remains of Deborah Lynn McConnell. So this is the second woman with a bra around her neck? Three. Okay, so this guy clearly has... Yeah, so we're, uh, we're obviously seeing a theme here. Most of them were, I mean, they were all skeletal remains, but by the fact that there was bras found around their neck, pretty much everyone, it was death by strangulation. There was only one that wasn't, and that is Rochelle. Um, she was actually beaten to death. But we'll get into that a little bit later because um, I believe, like I said, the suspect that I personally think might have had something to do with it. Um, or you know what? I'm just going to say he did it because he's dead anyway. I, I think he did it. He can't come for no, you. He can't come for me. But um, they had actually been dating. So it it kind of makes you think. But anyway, back to this. So this was Deborah Lynn McConnell, who had been last seen back in May of that year. Deborah, unfortunately, wouldn't be identified until March of 1989. Uh, like we said before, all of these were skeletal remains. So they had to get dental records in order to identify most of them. So... It was a, a little difficult, took a little time. December 10th, not even two weeks later, a couple men were riding ATVs passing through a gravel pit in Dartmouth, just a couple miles away from 195. And these poor men stumbled across a body of a woman. Detectives were called to the scene, and this scene was a little bit different than others because she was not dumped directly on the highway, though it was close enough. She was partially dressed like the others, though. And she was not as drastically decomposed. They were able to tell that she had been beaten to death. This was the body of Rochelle Clifford Doppelrera. Doppelrera? You're trying. You're I'm trying. trying. I'm just going to call it. her Rochelle. Okay. I love that name too, by the way. It's so cute. But, so this was the body of Rochelle. Meanwhile, the city of New Bedford, the community banded together. And in December of 1988, they actually had a candlelight vigil for the missing women of the community. Uh, New Bedford is a really tight-knit community, so... There was a lot of uh, people that really wanted to help. There wasn't too, too much media coverage. A lot of newspapers were covering it. But as far as like the news went, there wasn't too much about it. Um, because, again, it was, they were sex workers. So, yeah, it, it wasn't as, the media didn't see it as important, which is very, very sad. So, like I said, candlelight vigil really really sweet i do have a picture of it okay. so i think you'll love it too. i will and finally there was another breakthrough in the case where the detectives actually received the dental records for a bunch of the missing women deborah medeiros nancy deborah greenlaw and rochelle so december we had most of those women identified because they were able to collect the dental records and then compare those dental records to the skeletal remains which was pretty helpful and, of course, the detectives had the very difficult jobs of notifying all of these families that they were actually the Jane Doe's that they had been finding on the highway, which was incredibly sad. And the investigation carried forward into the following year. Uh, it was really hard to search during the winter, so searching actually didn't really pick up again until March when the snow kind of melted and it was easier to kind of maneuver along the highway and everything. So on March 28, 1989, our girl Josie was searching 140 southbound 
Just a few yards away from the Chase Road Freetown exit sign, Josie picked up the scent of human remains. About 28 feet inside the tree line were the decomposing remains of what appeared to be a woman with long brown hair and her teeth were thankfully fully intact. So neighbors who actually lived close to the highway said that the summer before they could smell a horrible smell in the woods, but nobody could pinpoint where the smell was coming from. And it soon kind of disappeared. So they just assumed it was like an animal or something. And, you know, it is what it is, which is just so morbid and so scary to think about that they were actually smelling a decomposing body. Now, I've never smelled death before, and I hope I never have to. It's gross. Um, where did you smell death? I um, My cats used to bring home all kinds of dead animals. Isn't it the same smell as, like, human? Decomposing flesh is a very de- distinct smell. See, I, I... And I feel like if you smell that, and it's that potent, you gotta... Someone has to investigate. But, I mean, I don't know if there's a difference between animal flesh and human flesh it really dying. from what i've read it really smells the same like okay. like rotting cheesy don't even want to think about it yeah it's you don't if you've never smelt it you don't want to smell it no i don't want to um but thankfully by the time that they had found this body they were able to retrieve most of the dental records for everybody so it did not take long to identify these remains as robin lynn Rhodes who was the first person that we actually talked about at the beginning of this episode. She went missing in April of that year, or the prior year. Now we're in 89. And I do want to add like a little quote here from Robin's mother, Jean, when she was informed of the discovery. She said, I was hoping it was somebody else. I was hoping to hear from her. Now I will never see my daughter again. Shit like that gives me goosebumps. Yeah, it... There's a couple quotes in here from the family members. They were very involved with the um, the book Maureen Boyle took. Um, she made a big effort to really talk to the family members. So I, um, I have a couple quotes from them in here. And only three days later, after Robin's body was found, we have uh, 12-year-old Robert Bauer and 14-year-old Paul Keyes were roaming the woods near their house, nearby their Kirby Street neighborhood in Westport, Mass., which is a small seaport town kind of just outside of New Bedford, kind of near Fairhaven. Yeah, I know where Westport is. Yeah, yeah. so right in that area. And Paul's dog had actually gotten off leash, so they were in the woods searching for him in an area that they were really unfamiliar with. They hadn't really been around that area before. And while searching for Paul's dog, they found a human skull. Children finding a human skull has yes. got to be traumatizing. Yes, so they immediately went back to their home and told uh, I believe it was Paul's mother and she called the police thankfully Westport police took it very seriously because I mean like two boys saying I found a skull in the woods like I I was kind of worried police would be like yeah okay which wouldn't I'm just happy that they the boys recognized that like oh shit yeah and didn't like try and like touch it and play with it exactly nope they went right home and then they brought police back to that same area and uh thankfully like i said the westport police took it very seriously they knew that state police had been searching the area and what's really really freaky is state police had actually been searching um highway 88 which is right it cuts through westport right there and they had stopped their search with cadaver dogs 
pretty close to where that skull was, and they were going to pick up their search a few days later. And these boys just happened just to find happened it. happened to find the skull in the woods. So this body was only 10 miles from where the other three women had been found on Interstate 195. And a few days later, this was identified as Mary Rose Santos. And Mary's mother had stated, I just knew she was going to be one of them. Oh, my God. Which is just... Mother's intuition. It's they know. so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Even um, Nancy's sister, I didn't add this in, uh, but in the book, uh, Nancy's sister had actually driven by uh, when they discovered Nancy's body on 195. And she asked her husband to stop and was like, that's my sister. And he was like, no. Oh, my God. And it was. It was. Oh, my God. People just know. Yeah. Like, always it, go with your gut because it's seriously. It's always right. Always trust your gut. Now, a month later, on April 24th, we're brought back to a familiar scene. A highway cleanup crew is removing some garbage from I-95 in Marion. And that, again, is just a little rural city a couple miles away from New Bedford. And just a few feet away in the tree line was a woman's body slumped in the fetal position. Her face was up and her feet were facing the highway, but it looked like she had been dumped very quickly. And these were the remains of Sandra Bethello. She had gone missing in August. She was a woman who said she was just leaving her apartment to go get some bread and she'd be back real quick. And she was the last body that was found discarded on the highway. What's the total number now? So nine bodies found, 11 women missing. Okay. And now with nine bodies found, detectives are doing everything they can to find suspects. They're trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. Um... And even though the entire case was basically a complete fucking investigative nightmare, you had a bunch of bodies that were dumped months before they were found. And um, I don't know if you know this, but pretty much anyone, any police officer will tell you in a homicide, the first 48 hours are the most crucial to finding evidence. That's why they have the show. Exactly. 48 hours. Um, Obviously, none of these were found within 48 hours of being dumped. Oh, no. And I hate when people, like, you hear about cases where people try to report you know, loved ones missing, and they're like, oh, give it time. Oh, yeah. give it time. But then on the other hand, you're like, but the first 48 hours are so important. So if it's so important and there's a fucking show about it, I would just wish more police would take it seriously, regardless of if the person is an adult, and any adult can leave on their own free will. Doesn't mean they did. Exactly. Um, if it's a teenager that, you know, has run away before they just don't take it seriously but then they're like first 48 hours like pick one like it's hard because you know when somebody goes missing you don't want to freak out and you 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 don't want to jump to conclusions but like like i went missing once when i was a kid i didn't like i went to a friend's house after school and i apparently forgot to text my stepmom and um they went to the school to find me and they couldn't find me and they were like bugging out uh, I was literally at Teresa's house, which is in my neighborhood. You think but, they would have called? But I will never, I will never forget them like freaking, them freaking out. The school was freaked out, and it was like, you know. But again, they didn't call the police. They were just, you know, calling friends and driving around. Eventually, they did call Teresa's house, and Lynn was like, "Yeah, she's here." Oh my god! But, yeah, I, I think I was like fourteen, fifteen, maybe. But and like the Brittany Drexel case, like oh that my god. we're gonna cover Brittany Drexel, even though it was outside of New England. And especially oh. since 
since they did find her recently. Yeah. But that case has stuck with me because she, we were the same age. Yeah. Same a... age, same grade. Um, and like right away, they were on it. They were on it right away. They with really her. were. And Which, that's, but that then you hear important. about people that are like, oh, no. Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. Just wait till you hear from them. It's so frustrating. And it's such a gray area that it's just hard. Yeah. It's wicked hard to navigate. But anyway. Sorry. Go on. <clears throat> Excuse me, guys. So, like I said, you know, first 48 hours are the most important. A lot of these women weren't found anywhere near the first 48 hours. And a lot of witnesses to when they went missing were addicts and had really hazy timelines. So it was just, like I said, a fucking investigative nightmare. So they did their best to try looking into suspects. So, you know, despite the fact that pretty much every single, everything was up against them, they did their best to figure out some suspects. And they did have a few people that were in mind. Um, that frequented the area of Weld Square. They had been talking, and, you know, pretty much all the women had similar connections. They were, had substance abuse problems. Most of them were known for having some kind of sex work issues as well, or they had been arrested for sex work. And they pretty much decided that they were going to start there by talking to all of the other women on Weld Square to see if anybody stood out as suspicious. And it didn't take long for them to hear about a warning that had been passed around from all of the sex workers since about two years prior in 1987. And the woman who had spent a long time on the streets would always tell the newer girls, whatever you do, never get in the truck with the man with the pushed in face, the one that looks like a boxer. What? The pushed in face? Yes. And I'll show you a picture of him. He does. He, and when they say boxer, they meant like, like a boxer dog. Like he had a very flat face. Okay. Um, so this man was known to hurt women in the area. He would normally pick them up and seem perfectly fine. Like he was just interested in just hanging out for a little bit. And then he would drive them to a secluded area and begin to sexually assault them and choke them and beat them. So all of the women knew to stay away from this man. And they all said that he had the same description. He was very built, kind of stocky dude, had a white pickup truck and had a pushed-in face like a boxer. Now, one of the women had actually told detectives that this man had raped and robbed her back in 1987, and when he was attacking her, he said, I'm going to kill you, bitch. And he remembered hear she remembered hearing that between blows. Another woman was brave enough to actually come forward to police and look at potential suspect photos, and her name was Margaret Medeiros. She had been attacked by the man and had heard everyone talking about it and telling police about it, so she decided to go and talk to them. She, like all the other women, had been picked up by him in a truck, and when she asked for the money up front, he lunged at her and started grabbing her neck and twisting it like he was trying to snap it. And this guy's crazy. Margaret tes testified that she heard him say that he was going to do her like he did those other bitches. So he's already given himself away. Yes. So after struggling for her life, Margaret managed to kick him in the groin and was able to escape out of his vehicle. Oh, fuck yeah, Margaret. And got away from him. Okay. So detectives had a few men in mind to 
had a kind of flat face and kind of looked like the description that they were attacking or that was attacking women. So they brought the photos to Margaret and they had her look at them. And one of the photos she pointed out and said that she was absolutely positive that that was a man that attacked her. And this was the photo of 26-year-old local construction worker, Anthony DeGrazia. 26? Yes. And that is where we are going to leave it. No! Until part two. Cliffhanger! Yes! I wanted to. So I, this is my first cliffhanger. So I, I love it. Dramatic. Yes. But um, definitely with a two-part episode, it's fun yeah. to leave a little cliffhanger. And you're going to have to wait a whole week. Yes. To hear part Sorry, two. Guys, Sorry. I knew that I couldn't do like a three-hour episode. And this is a, this is a long one. Yeah. So we have several suspects to get into. And I'm just going to say right now, I don't think Anthony did it. I was just about to ask, is this the guy that you think did it? Wait till you hear about the second suspect. And that's the guy that you think? Yes. Oh, yeah. This is crazy. Like, I don't even think I heard about this case at all until you were like, I really want to cover this. Like, this is the first episode you wanted to do. Yes. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of big. Let's let's push it back a few. So I didn't even know that this was a thing until I came across Maureen's book in a Barnes and Nobles. I love the true crime section of That's, Barnes and Noble. You never know it. what you're going to find there. It was, um, it was, I believe it was the one in Dartmouth and it just happened to be like just right there. And it, I turned and I was like, New Bedford, what? And I was in a Barnes and Noble in El Paso, Texas Ooh. last year. And I found a book um, that was written by a guy that, is his own little investigator for the Maura Mari case. Oh my god, no way. And, yeah, so in El Paso? Yeah, like? yeah. I mean her case is huge, but it was cool to see a book yeah. about her case in all the way in Texas. Yeah, that's crazy. And it was so funny, um, because this guy came up to me and he was like, Oh, like any good like true crime books like trying to hit on me. Oh my god. And I was like, actually, yeah, this one and I'm like, have you heard of more Amari? And he was like, no. And I was like, what the fuck? And like, oh I went on to tell about more Amari. And he's like, oh, like, what are you doing here? Like, da da da. And I was like, oh, I'm here with my fiance um, for a trip, da da da. And I turn around and Andrew is like looking at us oh through like two, like a crack between two shelves. Only oh, Andrew, <laughs> you see his eyes. And I'm like, and I look at him and I'm just like dying laughing. And he's like, he told me later, he's like, yeah, I heard your voice talking to somebody and there was a dude talking to you. And it was just so funny because, like, I didn't even pick up that he was trying to hit on me. I was just like, yeah, true I'm crime book. <laughs> so oblivious to that, too. I was so into what I was, like, looking at. And yeah. I was just like, yeah, look at this one. Telling him all about more about And he's like, I don't give a fuck. I'm just trying to pick you up. Right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, my husband's watching the whole thing. <laughs> um, oh, so, yeah, Barnes & Noble true crime section. I actually got another really good book that i'll let you read um so the zodiac killer yeah unsolved to this day um i read a book and this guy he was adopted and he believes that his birth father is the zodiac killer and it's been like debunked i guess um but you know what it is a really good theory that this guy has yeah i love a good theory yeah yeah i mean maybe we'll cover the zodiac killer we could we could i'd be down down the line oh yeah um, because it's up. Like yeah. this guy, if you don't know who the Zodiac Killer is or what he I feel did, like that's a big one. Most people at is, least know the name. Yeah, but I don't think they know like a lot. Yeah, either. 
But, um, because, like, I feel like, yeah, we heard this guy, we heard of, like, John Gacy, Golden State Killer, but, like, some some of the big serial killers, even me, I'm just like, what exactly what this guy did? Yeah. Like, I know the name, but, like, what did he do? Yeah, you don't know what But, like, did. this, yeah. this, the Zodiac Killer sent, like, cryptic codes to the police yeah. to publish in the newspapers. Yeah, that are still very much debated to this day. Yeah. Yeah. It's... And in the book, um... That I'm gonna have you read. This guy, he was he looked at the code. He saw his father's name, his birth father's name, like right away. Interesting. Yeah, and like the handwriting is really similar. Uh, um, just like handwriting, so hard though with like like testing handwriting. I know it's like like morbid says it's like a hot dog in a trench coat. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes I look it, at handwriting, I'm like, that's a typical, like, old lady cursive, yeah. you know what I mean? It's it's just a, not a solid forensic science. Yeah, Kind of like, um, like, lie detectors. But even, like, the sketch of the Zodiac, like, looks like this guy, too. Oh, shit. So he's a really good theory. That's um, spooky I scary. Think, but, you know, there are things that don't match up either. So. Yeah. Anyway. Cool. Yeah, let me borrow that book. Yeah, Definitely. I, I have it, like, right over there. But, all right, guys, so that is it. We will see you in part two. All right. Stay spooky. Stay scary. And stay safe. safe.